Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. Welcome to On The Verge, today's special guest. Well, I just hope that one day teaching and podcasting goes well enough that I can afford one of his amazing homes. But we're talking with the man who builds the finest custom homes in Nashville, widely recognized across the country for his work as the founder and president of Castle Homes, Alan Looney. How are you, buddy? Hey, we're doing well. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Well, I'm, I'm very fascinated by architecture, both golf course architecture and architecture of buildings. Um, where did your love for the architecture piece and or the, the total package, whether it's to the drafting piece or the engineering piece or the whole shebang of building homes, where did that come from? You know, when I was in uh, high school, I had a, a drafting class, you know, mechanical and architectural drafting, and just fell in love with drawing and just realized, hey, I love drawing houses, floor plans, and, and mechanical drawings. And, you know, actually in high school, they had a, a program called VICA, Vocational Educational Courses. Yeah, I can't remember the whole mm-hmm. thing. But Back anyway, then, yeah. but basically, you know, it's teaching how to teach, you know, learning how to draw and drawing by hand and realizing that, uh, you know, drawing by hand is really the best way to learn. Really, it said that nowadays a lot of people want to get straight to the computer and do get, go straight to AutoCAD, but I think you really can develop a plan and create a, uh, you know, it's, it's like a form of art mm-hmm. to me. And and just went on to college and got a degree in engineering instead of architecture at a branch of Texas A&M I attended. Was closer to my home. Mm-hmm. My dad, his his plan and my plan were a little different. He, I had to stay close <laughs> to home and work. Matter of fact, I remember going to my dad and, and my mom and dad never graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. And my dad had an auto body collision center. And I grew up doing auto body work all through junior high, high school, and college. And the time I got out of high school, I man, I could take a car apart, put it back together, paint the car, and I was doing all that. And then you know, um, 
realized that's not what I wanted to do forever and, and working for my dad. He became more of a boss than a dad. And, <laughs> but I just really had an interest in in in, in uh, drawing and, and building. And my, actually, when I went to college, my dad built a house. Uh, and, of course, you know, I see this same, you know, scenario playing out nowadays. A lot of these people I built houses for, their kids are now gone they're finished college they're gone away and now they're building a, this dream home they've always had yeah and it's kind of crazy so my parents kind of did the same thing back then and just loved the process of it and then whenever i graduated from university went to work as an engineer within about a year from there i, I built my first house you know? interesting and built it on the side sold it but did another one and and then just that's how i kind of got the ball rolling but that's like gosh you know 1986 87 i built my first house yeah well, you, do you have a you have a variety of styles too, and I love it because mm-hmm. you're, you're custom. So you're kind of like you you take with the the builder or the, the the people that are purchasing the homes ideas, and then mm-hmm. you meld your professional acumen to that piece. But do you have any particular style that really has your eye over another style? You know, it's every style we the home we design. We truly really try to make sure it has the right architectural style like for example if it's a french style it's all the components make it really a french home or an or an italian aid or english country or very contemporary but it's always evolving but you want to make sure it's very authentic and i think it makes it more timeless and i just love all styles and i think you know the great thing about what we do is it's creative every project's different mm-hmm. every client's different a client will come in and say i love the house you built over there and i said well but you know, we would love that we could we could build one similar. I can't build it identical, and but we want to make sure we create every house unique to the client, and and it's fun because you know every year you know new products come out, you know new uh, materials that just help push the envelope of design. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating because to me, like when I when I was growing up, like I would always hear like they don't build homes like they used to, and they don't they don't last like they used to. And I, I remember having a conversation with you a long time ago when I started teaching you about the difference between what you do as a custom home builder at the high end versus what a, a you know, like almost like a carbon you know a cookie cutter stamp stamp it out mm-hmm. talk to us about the, the differences and I, I'm, I'm interested because I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole process mm-hmm. because every home that I've ever purchased was already built and I, it was already all three of the four were brand new so we just walked in oh, this is good mm-hmm. I like it but talk to me about the differences between what you like to do with your company in the custom side versus the cookie cutter version out there and why it separates you from mm-hmm. them. Yeah, this is basically it's a different business model. You basically have your production builders, you have spec builders, you have some semi-custom builders, and you have truly full-on custom, which we really are pretty full-on custom. You know, some of our product that we build or maybe could consider a semi-custom where it might be a plan that somebody just loves and we just totally redesign it, but it really becomes a whole new plan. But the business model is... You look at the big volume builders, and they have standard plans, and they have it, and they have those plans nailed down to the penny on what every piece of material is going to go in there. By how 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 far can they stretch an eye joist before they have to go to the next size and spend more money? And so they design those homes in a way that that are they can just pretty squeeze every penny out of them. Mm-hmm. And and you know you know those guys you know it's it's just a different business model, and they limit their selections, they limit their clients uh, you know i guess choices and and then the, then the spec builders they'll come in they'll build you know 
the uh, you know, let's back home and same thing. You know, you, what, you might walk in the front door and it may, oh, it's beautiful. I love the paint color. I love the cabinets. The countertops are nice, but what's behind the walls? You know, they might be using their you know, lesser quality insulation, lesser quality mechanical systems, lesser quality windows, things that people don't n- normally pick up on when they first walk in a new home. And 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 I know our philosophy is just to do it right. You know, we yeah. want to build the home. We want it timeless. We want it 50 years from now, somebody to come in and say, hey, that house is gorgeous, you know, and or 100 years from now. And, and it's still standing from the and the, the thing that makes, I think, a house timeless is, first of all, it's the architectural integrity of the design uh-huh. it, it really has to have the details and features that make it unique the proportion of the of the design has to be right on the elevation the scale and then as you get into the floor plan the floor plans have to be very well thought out minimize your waste of space make sure it's functional and you have great sight lines and some people when they walk in the front door you know they walk into your room they're not they, on, on, a, on one of our homes we plan it where as you walk in the front door, there's a sight line. We have these axes that kind of run all through our house. And so if you're in the kitchen looking into your family room, there might be an axis from the kitchen hood to the fireplace in the other room. So when you're standing at your sink, you're looking, you have this nice visual. Everything's centered up. And so, yeah. Interesting. so we, and, and then the, and the quality of the materials that we're using, you know, are definitely more high end. So it drives the cost of the house up quite a bit mm-hmm. and, and then when you get to the finishing side not just the things behind the wall from better quality mechanical systems and engineer we use the engineers to design every one of our mechanical systems we um, we have in, on staff interior designers that really customize every client's home to their taste and their style and their look and their and, and the way they want to live and so it's a process and you know talking, talking about process one thing being an engineering engineering mindset Everything we do is process driven mm-hmm. from we have mapped out how we want our project managers to run their position, how they're going to manage the job, how they're going to communicate. So we have have written process and procedures for a project manager to make them more effective. We have written process and procedures for interior designers and how they handle every client, how they go through their design phase. Mm-hmm. And, and see, even in the sales cycle when people come in. So every client comes in the front door, they go through the exact same process. And and the thing that one thing that we do that's very unique, then you probably will see uh, here from most you know, general contractors and custom builders that they build on a cost plus type based contract. We build every home on a guaranteed price. And so when we're estimating our homes, there's a lot of design work that goes in on the front end to nail down every little detail from right down to the, what kind of hinge on the door you're going to put on you know, your moldings, your cabinets, your flooring, your plumbing, uh, you know, speakers, mechanical systems, you name everything so detailed out that it's unit price and so we are able to give the client a guaranteed price and and we and our estimates are so tight you know we typically we put in like a three percent contingency in the budget so that's not a lot of money when it comes to uh you know it's a home it's a million bucks it's not a lot of money three percent and so when you start that job and in that job that's all the fluff you have in that budget and so it's really unique to the industry. There's nobody else in town. I know that it does what we do. There's nobody else in Nashville that's a design build firm that has four full-time interior designers, you know, five full-time project managers, a VP of production, estimators, accountants, and, and we're all professionals. They all have degrees in what they do. And, wow. And one thing about us is that when you come on board, we want really good team players and trying to find people that have the same passion that I have. Yeah. I got this passion speech. When we're interviewing people, I really try to drill into and find out what is their passion. If I can't see it or hear it, 
friendly, they're not going to be a fit for our team. I mean, if you have a passion for what you're doing, just like I have a passion for work, for just building a company as well as designing and building homes, I have a passion for golf. And you want to work at it always to get better. Yeah. So I think that's really what makes us different and from a design build firm here in Nashville. Yeah, well, one of the things that I can tell you is that I've been in three of your homes uh, for your like your little like the cavalcade of homes mm-hmm. and uh, and another families that that's living in it and it's so it's so magical and it's interesting to listen because I didn't get a chance to tell you that I've been in your places mm-hmm. before but to tell me how much detail you go into the accesses and and the how you when you can stand in the kitchen there's this view that you can see through the house that's one of the first things that I noticed was like. Mm-hmm. There's some strategy that I know nothing about here that the reason why things line up like this, that make it, it's so subtle. Like the power of the design is so subtle, mm-hmm. but it, and that's the beauty of it because it keeps on lasting that mm-hmm. way. Yep. And that's the, that's, that is then the passion mm-hmm. because it is not just stamp it out. There is a very, is a very thought provoking, deeper level architecture being done and that now makes a lot more sense because it it resonates with how I teach golf, mm-hmm. and it ties together with one big word that you have, which is the passion. Mm-hmm. I have a gigantic passion to help people enjoy a really hard game. Mm-hmm. You got a gigantic passion to help people build a dream scenario on what is likely their largest purchase they'll ever make in their lifetime, mm-hmm. and make it something that they never forget. Exactly. You, you, you want it to be a good experience. If they don't have a good experience, they're not going to tell their friends and their family or you know coworker, hey man, you know Castle Homes, hey, you got to use those guys. And so, I mean, you really it has to be a great experience all the way from the design to the and they move in it and it, it just feels good. I yeah. mean, you walk in our houses, they just feel good. And, yes, and they do. They have a lot more. You know, our window budgets for our houses are quite a bit more we use more larger scale windows a lot of window a lot of light bringing bringing a lot of natural light too they really helps that home just feel better mm-hmm. but yeah i mean it's everything's so detailed and so thought out interesting well i'm always fascinated by the cool gadgets the things that mm-hmm. you put in that are not just the 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 floors and mm-hmm. the the tvs and the cool stuff but what are some of the coolest things that you've ever put in to a home, whether it be mechanically or just like a theater, what are some of the cool things you put in? You know, a lot of it is is uh, we want it to be visual. So uh, when you, people walk in the house, they want to be wild. We, we finished this house over in uh, Forest Hills a few years ago for a client, and it's a very modern home. It's a really cool house from the outside. And as soon as you walk in the front door, their wine storage is right there as you walk in. You get you you walk in the foyer to the right to the dining room, and you have this glass, basically closet. It's not really a closet. You know, it has glass three sides or four sides basically, mm-hmm. but it separates the dining room from the kitchen area and from the family room area. So you walk in, you see this glass, you see these wine bottles all hanging sitting resting on this uh cable rail cable this cable system that hangs from the ceiling all the way to the ground wow and and it's like you see through the glass you see these wine bottles it's suspended in air it's one of the coolest wine wine uh, storage systems we've designed and built actually last year i had a i got an email from uh somebody from the wall street journal and there's they said we saw this post on instagram of this amazing wine storage uh it's a system you have. We wanted to see if we could maybe 
use it in a story in the Wall Street Journal. Oh, and, wow. And, and how wine stores has evolved, not necessarily being in a cellar anymore. They think, you know, how I have a wine cellar. But not, nowadays, they're really not wine cellars anymore. They're now right out in the open so people can see them. And so, yeah, that was kind of nice. So I had a good interview with them, and they previewed, previewed our wine uh, wine, our wine closet, wine storage for this client in, in the Wall Street Journal. Nice. That's really cool. And it's about the cool stuff, too, is we're doing one now. It's another really modern home. So the client wants this TV that basically, I mean, this, this bedroom has a lot of glass. It sits on the top of a hill. I mean, you can see downtown. You can see across Richland Country Club. It's amazing how oh, beautiful wow. it is. And, um, but he didn't want uh, he wanted to put a, put a put a TV in the room, but he didn't want a wall there to block his view from the outside. So we have this TV that basically, when you look up, looks like a ceiling, but then it's going to drop and suspend down and fold down, so he can be in bed and watch his watch his TV. There's all kind of gadgets like that we'll, that wow. we do. But you know, clients come to us with an idea, and we figure out how a way to do it. You know, yeah. and uh, and do it right. Is there any buddy or any way that you could? think about doing something outside of Nashville, like a Wall Street Journal would seem like that could bring you so much business. And I know that you're mostly here, Nashville, Brentwood, and the the surrounding Burbias, but has there ever been like an idea or like a way to put together a team that travels to other places? Or what are your plans to take advantage of all of your popularity right now? You know, it's, it's the one thing is it's trying to scale a business up is, is definitely you know, a challenge to try to keep the same level of service that you provide for a client. Mm-hmm. And it starts with having great people. And to take it to another city and try to reproduce what we do, we could do it. I begin, it's it's not really been a, a something that, that had a desire to do. Interesting. You know, I really wanted to be the, you know, hey, who's the guy in Middle Tennessee that you want to go to to build your, your custom home? Mm-hmm. And we have such a demand for our services and we employ a really great team of people that are professionals that are, I think, top in their in their, in their field. That that helps us continue to grow. We kind of can pick and choose the work that we want to do, sure. and it's one of those things that I get calls all the time to go out of state, to go other cities, uh, outside of Nashville, and I just turn it down because if I can't deliver the same level of service and the same level of the quality that we want to to project then it it starts to, you know, if I were to do that and it goes the other direction, quickly your name can be tarnished. And yeah. one thing my dad taught me, your name is everything. Growing up as a kid, his name in town was like, hey, if you had your car in a collision or you wanted to do a restoration on the car, where do you take it to in Weatherford, Texas? You, you take it to Lynn Looney Auto Body Collision Center. And... And my, he, he would just take care of people. So I really learned that from my dad, even though my degree is in engineering and I had to have a minor in marketing. But I learned a lot from my dad about just, you know, you know taking care of business and doing things right the first time. And, 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 and it's hard. And you got it's all about people and getting yeah. the right people. And so and, and, and to take it and scale it up to a different city. Now you're expanding it. It's becoming more more of a more volume you know and yeah. and we still do our goal is to do you know 15 to 20 homes a year which is still a lot of houses Ooh, yeah in these homes that are probably probably most of the homes that we're doing start off about a million and a half and up you mm. know and that's not counting the land yeah and so anywhere for right now i think the projects we're doing are anywhere from about a million and a half to four million and um and that's so that's a 
that's a lot of volume. That's a lot of sales. Yeah. And some of these these projects take nine months to, some of them may take up to twelve to fourteen months to build. And I think that what we do, and we're able to turn houses a little faster than maybe a normal kind of a smaller, say normal, smaller custom builder that doesn't have the staff that we have. You know, we have our critical path scheduling and so everything's just on top of it. And so wow. we're able to build our homes a little quicker than maybe another smaller, you know, pickup truck kind of custom builder would. Sure. That's in, that's incredible. You have an awesome relationship with Southern Living. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about how that came about, the role that you play and the importance of that to you. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of an honor. You know, several years ago, we we were uh, Southern Living reached out to us and uh, wanted a builder to represent them within the Middle Tennessee area, and uh, you know, I guess just because of our reputation, our website, our work that we've that we've, that we've completed in so many years here, and and. Uh, so basically, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer. So you know, cross-branding is another way to continue to build your brand. And so since then, I've been appointed to the to their board. They have a board of about ten builders that meet every year, and then we have phone calls throughout each month. And so I'm on this builder board that they have, and uh, just to you know test the market. Uh, you know, they look at products. You know, Southern Living is really big about sponsorships and stuff. And so, um, you know, they, they really turn to us and and ask us our feedback on. You know what's going on in the marketplace. You know what's the economy looking like. What's you know what products are people gravitating to, and and then look, you know those things help them with their promoting their their magazine mm-hmm. by stories and and articles. And we've been published in Southern Living. And to 2013, we built the Southern Living Idea House at the Fontenelle, uh, in the, the uh, Barbara Mandrell Estate, you yeah. know where she sold it to some developers, and they. Uh, you know, built this nice venue up there, and it was, so it was a really cool project. Actually, the house is one of the largest Southern Living idea houses that they've ever completed, it. And, oh, wow. and it was up there. And it basically, it's a bed and breakfast facility. It was pretty cool. And then last year, we were actually approached by uh, twenty. I guess 2018, we were approached by House Beautiful magazine, and I, and I think what caught their eye, they wanted to come in and showcase one of their their annual one home a year showcase home, and uh, reached out to us to see if we had interest in partnering with them on their home, and and so we actually uh, last year completed a House Beautiful concept house in Bellmead, beautiful house, just amazing, and had interior designers from all over the country that participated in the interiors and. Hmm. Uh, you know, the architecture was is amazing. It's basically it's an English arts and crafts home and heavily influenced by Charles Voicy. Voicy is an architect from the late 1800s, early 1900s. That was uh, considered like the grandfather of the arts and crafts movement. And so you'll see a lot of his his style and uh, of his designs in this house. It's, it's pretty cool. Awesome. But Southern, Southern Living is pretty cool because it's we get to use that brand and cross brand cross cross promote our company, which is great. So people call us too. Hey, I understand you're the Southern living custom builder in the area. Love for you to sit down with you and look at building a house. So that kind of, you know, anything you can do to help cross brand your company and marketing and, and uh, to help grow, grow it. You know, it's, it's, you know, you look at, I look for opportunities like that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really fascinating. One of the other things that I'm fascinated about that I love talking about on my podcast is you do things for charity mm-hmm. to help raise money for different different organizations and different 
particular topics probably of interest to you, but I'm interested to understand like how those great opportunities come about and what is it about doing something like this big of a deal that raises money for charity? Mm-hmm. Talk to us about that. Well, you know, every time we do a showcase event and basically every two years for the last 20 years, you, we've held a showcase home and either for the, for a magazine. And whenever we do, it's typically, uh, you know, proceeds benefit the uh, a charity or, or, or something that we, that's dear to our heart too, or the arts. And so the last year's house, the benefit, it benefited the, uh, the Nashville symphony. And then, you know, prior to that, you know, we did the uh, St. Jude's and, uh, so St. Jude's has been a, a big, a big, uh, several times we've actually, uh, was the, the charity that we would contribute the, the proceeds to. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's part of giving back in the community and also sponsoring Habitat Houses. You know, it's something we typically do just about every year. I think last year, because of the Showcase Home, we missed last year, but it's something every year we, we sponsor and, and our, our team goes out and we work and help build a Habitat House as well. Oh, fun. Yeah, that's a big deal because you know at the end of the day, we're here. What we're getting a chance to do all the time, we're blessed to be able to do a lot of things and to be able to give back and to be able to talk about giving back, especially in the kind of world we're living in right now. Is it's it doesn't get brought up enough right now. There's a lot of things being taken, but not a lot of things being given. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a it's interesting to be able to throw out that because it's not something that like I hear the press for you, which is mostly the people that I know that have purchased a home from you that are super happy about it or the, the, uh, the great work that you do with Southern living. But then when I started to dig around on what it is that you do, the things that pop up first and the biggest deals to much of the community mm-hmm. is the great work that you do that gives back mm-hmm. to the people in need. And that's, a, that's a beautiful thing. Well, I think it's important to you just to, uh, you know, your team, you know, your team see, you, you kind of show them and teach them, hey, you know, we're very blessed to do what we do here and people reward us for what we do, but it's also good to get back and give back your time and also your some some uh, financial uh, uh, gifts as well. Uh, you know, my church I'm very, at St. George Episcopal Church is, uh, you know, heavily involved there and uh, been been a member there for many, many years and, you know, you know, they have a big capital campaign going on to for a huge addition they're doing there for, for this year actually kind of our charity thing we're doing is is my son's a boy scout he just got his eagle scout mm-hmm. rank in may and but they're building a new boy scout hut or boy our boy scout storage building there and so basically that's kind of going to be our uh, charity thing for the year that we're helping build it from you know and getting sponsorships to help pay for it and mm-hmm. and uh help, help helping the boy scouts out awesome well, we have to get to the other thing that you build, which is your golf swing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it has come a long, long way, probably. Yep. I think I've been working with you uh, off and on uh, for about 12 years, maybe. Probably about 12 years. Yeah. And it's been, we, we went full circle. We went from slicer to mm-hmm. hooker. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was probably a time in your life that you never thought you'd ever hook it. Mm-hmm. And then it got to the point where you're, I don't ever want to see a hook ever. I know again. exactly. <laughs> so, talk to us about like your love for the game. Mm. Your, the, obviously, there's a passion for the game for sure, and how you got involved in it. And what does golf mean to you? Man, you know, it's yeah, first of all, I, I got involved with golf. My parents bought me a set of golf clubs when I graduated from college, and kind of dabbled in golf a little bit. Didn't know anything about it. Just but just quickly just fell in love with it. And with 
playing and I didn't get married. I was 29. So I played around with golf a little bit. And, uh, and then when actually, when I finally got married, my wife's, uh, or I guess my father-in-law, he is a, he's a, he's a golfer and, and a businessman and, and just love golf. And so I would go play golf with him. I probably just, you know, every time that his buddy saw me coming, they probably wanted to run the other direction because <laughs> the golf game was so bad. And it, and they would say that would, uh, took me a while to pull the trigger. <laughs> and so, but over the years, I realized I really had to get better. And so that's when I got to Nashville. And and then when I joined Hillwood, I heard about you. And that's been a long time ago. And uh, started taking some some lessons and realized that I, mean, I, had, I just had, I didn't know anything about a golf swing. And, and started reading a whole bunch and just trying to learn as much as I possibly could. I think sometimes it could be a detriment. And, 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 you know, sometimes you can read a lot and great thing, but then again, you read something else, somebody, well, that maybe is that contradicting what somebody said over here. And so, uh, you know, it's, uh, and then when we kind of hooked back up, you know, two or three years ago, about two, about two and a half years yeah, ago. Yeah. And, and just feel like, Hey, for a while there, I was going there, I guess to, you know, was that whatever the place is. And, um, uh, it felt like I was just, wasn't evolving the way I wanted to evolve my swing and, and just coming here and working with you is definitely, I mean, my, my swing is definitely taking a turn. It is so, it has gotten so much better. And the thing that, once again, just doing these podcasts does a lot for me to help me understand my, the clients, right? Mm-hmm. So understanding, I didn't know that you had an engineering degree. Mm-hmm. I thought it was an architecture degree. So like when I watch you look at these numbers on TrackMan and I watch like the detail that you you look at you look at the lessons like about maybe five percent of my clients do, which is, it's not just entertainment to you, it's it's business. When mm-hmm. you're taking the lesson, you're in it, and it's a beautiful thing because there aren't many people that are. Yep. You know, it's a passion. I, I just, I just, I just love, love the game. You know, I, you know, I, I like. I wish I, if I had my way, I could, I would practice every day on the short range. But just, you know, if work gets in the way, and yeah. or go hit golf, golf balls in the range and play. It's, but you know, I'm, I may be able to get out there, you know, once or twice a week, and um, and and uh, this whole COVID things kind of helped me really play a lot of golf with my son, which has been kind of really special because now he's getting really excited about it. But kind of just drilling in on those numbers, what do those numbers mean? You know, how how can I you know, understand what club I'm hitting, what kind of spin ratio does a club need to have, and, you know, what's the side angle, you know, what's the, you know, anyway, ball speed, club speed, and just learning kind of where do I need to be and how do I compare to, you know, a, more of a scratch golfer or, or the tour. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, I guess I'm, I'm 58 years old and how good can I get my game? I, I'm a 10, 10 handicap right now. And, and that's, to me, it's not good enough. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think a lot right now, some of the stuff that's working right in my game is my swing. I, I'm having fewer, I guess, bad shots. Yeah, fewer penalized Pen- shots. Penalizing shots. And, 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 and so now really is more that chipping and that putting and really drilling in more on that and, and just, I, as that, that's keeping me from probably consistently shooting somewhere under 80, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, but, uh, but, you know, this, you know, I'm studying golf swings on, you know, my Instagram and uh-huh. I follow certain, you know, <laughs> you know, golf swings and stuff. And, but I kind of almost like, just like in my work, I live, eat and breathe my work. I pretty much do the same thing with golf. Yeah. It's just, I just don't get to play as much as I would like. Mm-hmm. I have a simulator at home. I'm fixing it do a major upgrade on that mm-hmm. so that way when i am at home i have i can get the results that i need 
the great thing great thing about coming to see you is you're a great you're a great instructor, great coach. And as well as you hit the, the, your, your facility here is phenomenal. The camera, you know, seeing yourself swing, yeah. how, how powerful that is to make you understand, well, I thought I was doing something, but I'm not doing that, you know? Yeah. That's the thing that probably baffles the people the most is like, I tell people all the time, the thing that drives people nuts about golf is that you're very clear what I want you to do. You give yourself great directions mm-hmm. and you can't believe you're not doing it. Mm-hmm. Because that's almost like looking at the, a math problem that says two plus two and writing five. You're like, why did I just write five? I know it's right. four. It, it's it's so crazy for people to like. Okay, what I want to do, I want to get it up on my left thumb so the club face stays square, and I want to. It feels like I'm going to go out, down, and left. Or for you, it feels like a chop. Mm-hmm. You're like, and you swing. You're like, man, I really chopped at that one. And we look at the video, and you're like. I didn't chop at all at that one. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> exactly. And, and yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a. That's the frustrating piece of the game is because you're very clear what it is that you want to do, and you cannot believe you didn't do it. Yeah, I, I think you do so a great a great job of just reading the client and and your 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 the people you're coaching and just and, and communicating with them. And and I've taken many lessons over the years, and the communication and connection there is just not there on a lot of people I've ever taken lessons with. But I think with you, it's just been, it's really helped me that I really learn to swing. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, really. Okay. Now, and then when I look at a video of, of a pro swing and I'm like, okay, I see exactly what Virgil's talking about. You know, That's yeah, the those guys are swinging left. I'm not swinging nowhere near <laughs> left, you know? Yeah. But it's like, it's, but it's amazing. It's, you know, I just love this game. I just can't get enough of it. I just wish I could play every day, but this is not reality right now. How much has golf helped your business? You know, I think it's. it's I think it's, it's definitely helped my business because uh, you know I do play at Hillwood, and you know I've met a lot of people at Hillwood. I've built some homes for people at Hillwood. I've made connections there. They tell their friends about me as well, and and then within you know that and the other thing, I'm an avid runner and workout person. Mm. So. Uh, some of the guys that I play golf with are also runners and, and over the years of running in this circle, it's built a lot of houses for, for, for past clients that are actually people that have run and met through, through either running or golf or, uh, within the community. But it's definitely a really powerful tool that I try to t- tell my son, this is something you really can take with all your life. And I know you preach that to him as well mm-hmm. and how it can really help you well beyond, you know, just now, but in business, definitely it's a, it's a powerful tool. Yeah. I think that it's really fun when I get a chance to work with Alexander, your son, and he's, he's talking about, he's taking a, like a, either a class at Duke on on architecture. It's Auburn. On Auburn, that's yeah. right, Auburn. And so do you kind of sense the passing of the torch that you, that you want to get him involved in, in that? Because he seems to be very interested. And when I talk to him about it, he has – it lights up his eye. Like he, he's – obviously he's, he's 18, so he just turned yeah. 18. So he's mm-hmm. he's getting a grasp of – he's getting his feet wet. And I'm like, okay, I only have like five more years of this, and I've got a – the real mm-hmm. world's calling me too. Yeah. I think he's waking up to, you know, it's for the longest time when he, when he turned to, became a teenager, I told him he just became this goofy kid, you know, and, and he's kind of starting to outgrow that and it, taking things a little more serious, seriously mm-hmm. and uh, golf being one of them. And he, he, he likes, I think he's liking the construction side and I think it's maybe more construction management than it might be architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the reason why I didn't get a degree in architecture is that the branch of Texas A&M I attended the um, I, I would have to finish at College Station to to get an architectural uh, degree, and so but I could do my engineering degree there, engineering and engin- and so my engineering degree is industrial technology. Well, I got some 
construction side part of that and in, in that degree. But, uh, yeah, my dad, his, his plans and my plans were a little different. I wanted to go A&M and have fun and, and, and learn architecture. Which or, A&M did you go to? Uh, Tarleton State. It's a branch of Texas A&M in Stephenville, Texas. And hmm. a lot of people don't know this about me, but... You know, one, another reason why I went there is, is it's a big rodeo school. And oh, wow. and so I grew up in being from Texas and weather for Texas in the country. And, and we had a big rodeo team and at high school and I competed in the American Junior Rodeo Association and as doing bronc riding. And then I um, went to high school and competed in the, in the, the high school uh, rodeo association and then, then, the, then the college intercollegiate rodeo association. And I rode in the PRCA. Did that for many, many years. And really? Yes. How about that? Bronc rider. And, and same thing, just always just same. like back then, you know, I was always, how can I get better? Get, and made that, you know, the American Junior Rodeo Association, national finals, high school finals. And uh, but it was a lot of fun. So and then one day I woke up, say, hey, time to move on. You're not going to make a living doing this. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a lot of fun. But, uh, yeah. But he, like Alexander, he's starting to find his passion. I think he loves it. Now he's, he's asking me, like when I came over here today, hey, Dad, can I go? Can we go this weekend and, and practice our short game? I said, absolutely. We got a lesson on on Saturday with Virgil. Then from there, we'll we'll go work on our short mm-hmm. game. Yeah, I mean, both of you. Like, first of all, we're at a we're at a country club, Hillwood Country Club, where the greens are like U.S. Open every day. Mm-hmm. They're firm and super fast, and that taxes the all skill levels, which mm-hmm. is why that the tour when they play Augusta National. Everybody's sweating bullets with the putter mm-hmm. and being on the wrong side of the hole. Well, yeah. we're no different, just that our greens aren't quite as undulated as Augusta. I mean, if you get on the wrong side of the hole at Hillwood, it's, it's a bad day at the office for you. It's bad. Yeah, I mean, it's like, damn it, I'm, I'm up, I'm above the hole. I hate that when it happens. And last Saturday and or Sunday, we played Sunday, I think. And, uh, you know, they, they're letting the, the greens grow out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Of course, the front nine, I mean, it was, it was like, okay, I, can't, I couldn't get the ball to the hole. <laughs> And so I got used to the used to that speed, and then you got to yeah. adjust. And sort of in the back nine, I adjusted, scored better. Yeah. But you know, yeah. it was it was very strange how slow the greens have been recently. I know we got the the state am is coming mm-hmm. to Hillwood, and so they're probably protecting to make sure that it's. And they just airified this week. I think they use small tines, but it's that's one of the things that I I noticed. Like everybody wants to hit the golf ball, like as good as they can hit it. And I would say 85% of my clientele, if I gave them the choice between, hey, you're going to shoot 79 and you're going to stripe every golf ball, but you're going to hit a couple over the green, you're going to hit a couple of drives through the fairway into the bunker, and it's going to cost you seven shots. Or you can shoot 73, but it's going to be a scrambling up and down, 22 putts. What would you rather have? And 85% of the people that I teach are like, I'd rather just stripe it and deal with the 79 mm. than to kind of slap it around and shoot 73. Now, mm. the people that aren't that way are the guys we watch on TV. Now, they definitely want to hit the ball good, but they could care less how good they hit it. They want to know how low that number is on the far right side of their scorecard. Yeah, I want I want that low number. Yeah. yeah I, and I, it's, you know, I, I try to come see you every Saturday, yeah. standing lessons, lessons, and the goal that says, I want to – I want to lower my score, yeah. and but I felt like I really needed to rebuild my swing, and, and it's hard to rebuild a swing, yeah. and especially somebody my age really changing your swing, and I don't think you can do it without 
consistently taking lessons. Yeah, and dedicated. And I have some friends of mine say, I mean, your swing's looking really good. And I'll, I'll mention, you know, I've been taking lessons with you. And, and they'll say, oh, I mean, calling. And I said, well, if you do, you need to take a series of lessons. And you got to stick with it. You just can't go take one or two or three. You have to stick with it. And to me, it's like a, hey, you're my coach. Yeah. You know, I have coaches in business. You're my coach in yeah. golf. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a weekly thing that I want to do mm-hmm. and for and just, just as long as we can do it and until yeah. you get sick of me coming in here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that ain't going to happen, that's for sure. <laughs> Obviously, we sat here and we've talked short of an hour about all the great things that you do, but I'm absolutely positive you've had to face uh, difficult moments that required a level of perseverance that even when you were going through it, you weren't quite sure that you had mm-hmm. that in you. And one of the major pieces of my podcast is to help people understand that you've had a awesome, successful run in business, but there's no way it's been a straight line up the hill. Talk to us about something that you faced that was unbelievably challenging that you weren't quite sure you'd make it through, but you now use as your hallmark of perseverance that you know that you can overcome it because you have before. I think first it starts with an attitude, an attitude that you're going to win no matter what. Yeah. And I take that same attitude with everything I do in business and in golf. I want to win and running. I want to win no matter what I'm doing. I want to win. If you don't have that, if once you give up and say, Hey, you know, start making excuses, then you're going to fail. And, and when you face a challenge, you stand up and you say, how can I overcome this challenge? And how can I get better? How can we position ourselves in a way that we can, we can survive. Yeah. And probably I see the biggest biggest challenge that we've ever faced was in 2000, you know, seven, eight, nine, you know, they had the the great depression or or a recession that is. And, and one thing I did 20 years ago, I joined this builder peer group and, um, you know, I have like 20 different builders from around the country and non-competing markets. And we meet every spring and every fall. And basically it's an accountability group and we have a national economist that facilitates that meeting. And, and so that, and that that group's designed to help us work on best practice and procedures. How can we get better? How can we position ourselves? And so, I was at a, I was at our fall me, fall meeting or spring. I think it was our spring meeting. Was still it was cold, snow on the ground up in Indianapolis. And is this '08 or '07? Uh, this is '06. '06 before it actually happened. Oh, got it. And so our economist is telling us, and we're all presenting our business plan. So every year. We present our, our business plan at that meeting, and and then our peers critique our business plan and say, "Hey, is it is it pie in the sky? Is it legit?" Or you know, challenge you on your numbers and that stuff. And and so he was our economist was giving us giving us an economic update. And he says, "Guys, here's what's coming. We have massive inventories in this country." He says, "We're going to see a big big recession." I says, "Permits are going to plummet." It says, you know, banks are going to, credit's going to dry up. Uh, if you have land, get rid of it. If you have specs, get rid of it. The profit's not going to be there. And I'm, I mean, it's 2006. The, we had a backlog of work. We had, you know, customs. We had a couple of model homes we were building for sale. And 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 we only do like one of those a year. I think we had one going at the, at the time. And I was starting a new development in Green Hills called Arundel Court, a little eight-lot eight lot community in, off of Estes. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, you know, you know, we're doing fine. You know, he's freaking me out. You know, so, and so I drive back home and I tell my guy, he says, we, get, we, we have to start positioning ourselves for a recession. It's, gone, it's coming. And then at the fall of 2006, went, went to that meeting, and different builders from around the country were starting to see their, in California, my builder friend in California was starting to see his, his sales drop off 
pretty drastically. And then I went back in the spring of 2007, and he, he went from like 30 million, 30 million a year in sales to about 15 in a year. Wow. He just plummeted. And that would kept just kept dropping. And so I came back from that meeting, and we had, we had just started that house that we were going to build for sale, and had it on the market for one million two fifty, and we just finished it. And and I, then I got back. I said, you know, I think we need to probably drop the price on this house and just dump it and move on, because there was fourteen specs in that one neighborhood, all over a million dollars, and from a million to two two and a half million. And and the, and our economists kept saying that here's what's going to happen. Builders are going to be in denial. They're going to try to ride this out. They're, they're going to think, the, hey, it's just a, a little blip, but it's going to be really bad. And you need to get rid of this stuff because if, if, you sit, if you're sitting holding inventory and the banks become your enemies because when times are good, they're your friends. When times are bad, they want their money back. They yeah. want, they want the, this, these, ass, these specs off their, off their books. They want dirt off their books. And... So these are the builders. Sure enough, they were just dropping their prices, like you know, every few months, you know, twenty grand here, another twenty grand. And he said, "You have to get ahead of the market." And so I dropped our price of our house one point two five to to nine nine nine. I sold it with, within a couple of weeks. I'm sure I made all the other builders pretty upset, and in that community. And but most of those builders went out of business, and we we uh, were able to. We have one of our project managers we basically parted ways with. It was kind of a mutual parting. He went back to Birmingham, and we're just hoarding cash to make sure we can ride out the recession and uh, got rid of any inventory we had. We had custom homes, and he said most builders will basically stick their heads in the sand. They won't market. They won't promote and because they don't have any money. And so what you need to do is make sure you do anything and everything you can to keep your name out there and tell it's the best time to build prices have never been lower so you take the positive side of it and we took the positive side of it and i i bumped my marketing i doubled my marketing budget during that time and it just drove sales to us and uh, that really kept us you know that, that helped us to survive like, yeah. that's the only reason why we survived and and as we came out of it it put us in an even stronger position in the marketplace because we were doing the showcase who's going to do a showcase home in, in the middle of a recession we did, mm-hmm. and we pumped you know money in the marketing. We pumped people and drove people to our house, sold the house, got customs off of it, and and kept growing from there. But since then, we've just been straight up. But that's probably the the most scariest moment in our career of uh, in, in our company. Yeah, that was a pretty crazy time. I really thought that it was going to destroy me, mm-hmm. and it actually I got busier, which was kind of the most bizarre. Really? All the things that I remember about my my career, I remember getting the call that. Lehman Brothers was going down. Bank of America might be next. There was another company that mm-hmm. went down for sure with besides Lehman Brothers. I can't remember who that was. Um, Bear Stearns, mm-hmm. right? So they and I'm like, and all the chaos. And I teach a lot of stock guys, mm-hmm. and they're like, man, I'm talking people off the ledge, like from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Wow. And I'm like. So I'm like, and I had just bought a track, man. I got all this videos technology at Gaylord. I mean, we're, I'm in the top, I'm in the top of the top. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, I have just bought all this stuff way like, cause it was, I was cruising. I probably had it for four months. Didn't see it coming cause I wasn't in that world. Mm-hmm. And then I really, I think that simultaneously in that time though, we had a winter, there was no winter. 
So people kept mm. playing golf. I mean, I think that that year, I bet you we had maybe five days all winter that were below fifty degrees. Yeah. It was crazy. I remember. Look, I missed. I missed a, a Titans football game on December the twentieth. It was the last home game because it was eighty-two degrees, hmm. and I played golf with my brother-in-law instead of going to the football game because yeah. you wonder you could ever get a chance to yeah. play eighty-two degree on December twentieth. Huh. Did you do anything different to help drive you know, traffic? I've never really advertised. I just try to make an impact on people mm-hmm. bigger than just golf. Yeah. I try to and to get in the head of some people a little bit and help them understand that it's not just physical that's going to make the difference here. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot of what you put into it mentally mm-hmm. that's going to make a big difference. So I, maybe it's my people person and to make it seem like, I know this matters to you, and I know that you're going to be able to use this to help make money for yourself too. Mm-hmm. So let's get on this. I don't really remember. I don't remember backing off of thinking that this isn't mm-hmm. the best. This is the best time. Your comp. Your what you're doing is going to slow down. Mm-hmm. You're still okay. You're going to take these lessons. You're going to get a chance to work on your game a lot because things are going to slow down. And when the, when you come out on the other side. Your ability to play better golf and the things that you do around mm-hmm. you are going to cultivate more business and you're going to be ahead. Mm-hmm. And much like you said about the winner's mindset, I just refused to think that it was obviously I needed to pay attention, but I didn't need to like panic and go into the woe is me. Mm-hmm. It's just like, okay, what is there something that I can take out of this that's good? Not so, I mean, it's obviously a silver lining, but not so much Pollyanna. It's mm-hmm. just like, it's the facts. The facts are, yes, the economy is hurting, and yes, people have, some people put themselves in a tough spot, but you're a smart person, and you're going to come out on this, and you got all the, now you're going to have more free time, which is what you just told me. Mm-hmm. I just kind of go off what they tell me. And like, so we're going to get it to the point where your game gets better, you get a little bit more satisfaction out of your golf, and that's going to transcend into more business. And I got yeah. lucky. I got lucky. That's uh, great. I and, mean, it's it, it, just that word of mouth, you know, people... They see results coming to you know come in and taking lessons and working on their game, yeah. and they start seeing results. They, you know, you, you tell your buddies, you tell your friends, and and that that's a good feeder for yeah. you. Yeah, but no uh, but yeah, going during that time, it was we every six months we would see the same economist, and he would tell us, "Here's what's coming, here's what's going to happen next." And so we just I was prepared for the, for the, for that whole downturn. I knew it was coming. Did we? And I kept all my staff. Only that one project manager moved back to Birmingham, but everybody else, I kept them employed. Mm-hmm. All my subcontractors and vendors, they'd come in. They said, "Man, we want to thank you for all you're doing to keep us, at, you know, having a job." Yeah. And 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 it, I think you just got to show that mentality of never give up. Yeah. Always win. Work hard. Whatever it's going to take to 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 be successful and to grow and learn and, and just don't you never give up. Yeah. One of the things I'm fascinated by that's eerily similar to the time we're in right now. Is did you see the movie The Big Short? I did. Yeah. So like that shed a lot of light on what was going on at the time, mm-hmm. but we nobody was willing to tell the truth about what was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. Where everybody was just like, well, "How did this happen? How could the banks be doing this? How could how could they be giving these loans to people that couldn't even like, right. credit was so bad and they have mm-hmm. a track record of bad business decisions? Mm-hmm. How could we get here? Oh, is this person? We went like years with half-truths, and then this movie comes out, and I know it's a movie, but it was very detailed about the the people that were really ahead of the game at understanding it, much like mm-hmm. your economist. 
I'm very interested to see what's going to happen to COVID-19 and the movie we're going to watch in 2025. Yeah. That is going to be like, hmm. hmm. What the hell were we thinking? <laughs> That's <laughs> exactly what, what the right. Hell, why did we shut the economy down? They can ruin all these people's lives and, you know, people going out of business and, you know, financial, you know, hardships. And, you know, it's, 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 it's just nuts. You know, I think that, I think you're right. They're going to look back on it in a few years and realize, Hey, that was a big mistake, you know, but, uh, yeah. And you know, what, is, what's it doing to, you know, fortunate, you know, fortunate during this time you know, our business is thriving. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing that, you know, I was getting three or four phone calls and emails a day. People want to build a house, people coming from all over the country <clears throat> during the, during that, the, probably the worst part of this, this, uh, what is it? Pandemic. Pandemic. Supposedly, um, we, we went down like three or four a week. It was like I could breathe for a little bit. And the last three weeks to four weeks, it's back to where it was, even maybe even more so. Wow. And we seem to have more and more people. We were already getting phone calls from people from like New York or California. But now it's like Connecticut, Boston, New York, Chicago. It's like it's every week. Yeah. It's, Nashville's hot. I mean, even, it though, is. even though we got... A pandemic going on my understanding from the realtors uh like will chapman and the i mean he he's like he, i can't even keep my head together i mean mm-hmm. everywhere i turn i'm i'm, I'm just titling writing up another title writing up another title yeah he says it's crazy but we'd think that we'd be slowing down but i'm not th- sure we're not busier and i'm like that's crazy i think about i think about the country clubs around town like richland and hillwood and bellmead and and what golf club, club of tennessee and most of most of these clubs are already maxed out on memberships. And you have all these people moving here Where are they gonna that go? want to play golf. You know, like Alliance Bernstein moved their whole company out of New York. And it was like, I forgot how many. A thousand people. A thousand people of high income jobs. And you know, a lot of those people are a member of country clubs up, up there. Oh, yeah. And so for them to come down here and get into a club seems like it'd be pretty challenging. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because. You know, the Grove and Troubadour, the Discovery Land property uh-huh. down in, like, the southern part. Like, the, I mean, it's barely a suburb of Nashville. Isn't that in, isn't that in Alabama? It's nearly in Alabama. <laughs> it's close to Alabama, right? It's, it feels like it for sure. You feel like you need a helicopter. But both of those clubs, especially Troubadour because it's brand new, uh-huh. um, those clubs are the two premium high-end that have openings. Uh-huh. Golf Club's full. We're full. Hillwood, Bellmead is full. Richland's full. To the gills, mm-hmm. and the public golf courses. Man, it's been a long time since public golf has thrived. I mean, the public golf courses mm-hmm. are killing it right now. Yeah. So that's time. It's time for them to make their their money too. But I almost get a feeling there's going to be at least one more club in the Brentwood Franklin. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe west, like closer to the golf club, maybe even in Kingston Springs again, because mm-hmm. that's not that far. But there's no place they can't do it in town. Yeah, I don't know where. There's no, there's no dirt. Yeah, you know, you have to go out. So, wow, yeah, it's gonna be a it's interesting. I know. I just, you know, I joined Hillwood 19 years ago, and it's, and I love it there. It's, yeah. I mean, it's amazing that course and how they, it's matured and how they really have changed that club. It, it's really a nice place to be. From the club that I joined in '04 to the club that I'm playing right now. It could not be any better. Like mm-hmm. it has been a constant upgrade yeah. from everything. So I'm I'm very pleased with that. The second half of the show is designed to talk about the things you do to recharge your batteries. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, although not right now, um, historically people use things that bring a bunch of people together, like minded, uh-huh. to share moments, like a concert, 
mm-hmm. college football, NFL football, Major League Baseball, sporting events, uh, and then group family uh, events. And food and wine always play a, a role in the recharge mm-hmm. of a lot of people. So when we talk about the things that fill up your cup, Alan, where do you, where do you like to do that fills up your, your mental and your soul cup, so to speak? Well, I think the biggest thing is that you know, I want to be with my family as much as I can. And you know, spending time with Alexander and Anna Claire and Heather is, is important when I can, on the, you know, definitely on weekends. And mm-hmm. sometimes golf takes away from Heather and Anna Claire and I'll try to include them on that, but that's something that they're just not quite interested in. And mm-hmm. so golf really is one thing that really does help recharge me to get out and just kind of get away and forget about business. I love music. You know, sometimes I just, you know, outside on my back porch, listen to music and, or hanging out by the pool and just, and just kind of get in this zone and just song after song after mm-hmm. song and kind of help just f- forget about things and cooking out, you know, love great food. I love great French wine. Um, you know, and then like, and I like gathering with people yeah. and, uh, I would say that I don't do that near enough, but mm-hmm. when we do have a gathering, it's a lot of people. Yeah. Kind of, and it's great. And it's great. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fun. And, but, uh, you know, and taking trips, try to get away. I'm overdue for, I'm sure you are Ext- too. Extended time away for sure. That will be, uh, and that's going to be crazy. We might go, we literally might run into next summer mm-hmm. before that kind of thing frees up yeah so i mean and not to mention the fact that right now america and brazil are like blackballed they can't go anywhere oh i know we love to travel and uh-huh. we love to go to the beach we're going at the end of the month we go at the last week of july every month down towards alice beach and hang out down there and uh, but beyond that, we typically take you know three or four other trips throughout the year. And right now, we haven't taken anything. Yeah. And spring break was gone. The, the trip right out of school when school kids get out of school, we go somewhere that's that didn't happen. And but taking trips and you know one thing that my wife and I we love great food. She's also a, a gourmet cook. Her mom's a gourmet cook. Oh, cool! And just phenomenal. And so, uh, but we love to go out and to great restaurants and and uh, experience great food. Sweet. When you think of your favorite music. And your favorite band? Who's your favorite band? And what's your favorite kind of music? I think my favorite favorite all time bands. It's the Eagles, mm. hands down. First first rock concert I've ever attended was when I was in high school, probably nineteen seventy nine, I think, wow. or maybe eighty. Uh, it was the Eagles, their long run tour, first concert I ever attended. It was just like magical. It was like just every time I hear Hotel California come on, I just want to crank it up. You know, but I love I love I love all type of music. I love country music, you know, rock music, you know, Christian music, classical music. Uh, I love getting some of the old Texas country music. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll crank up that at home and start playing it. And some of these some of these artists that are more Texas artists that you probably didn't, don't really hear here in Nashville. Uh-huh. Sure, but uh, yeah, I just I love that. Interesting. What the, is the is that Eagles concert the best concert you've ever been to? Where's Hands the best down. Con- yeah. Hands down. I know. I've, you know. I've been to a lot of concerts, but especially through college and before I got married. And uh, but uh, but hands down, it's I think still one of the best concerts I've ever attended. Um, Brad Paisley puts on a mean show. Really, I'm not uh, seeing I mean, Brad Paisley. He's such a magical. Uh, and my kids wanted to go see Imagine Dragons. And I thought, oh gosh, it's not. They actually put on a, a pretty pretty amazing show as well. Interesting. Uh, but. But just uh, I'm supposed to go see Alan Jackson uh, this year, this summer. But I'm not sure if that's going to happen. Yeah, definitely not going to happen, unfortunately. The concerts are love concerts, and don't get 
don't get to go as, as much as I would like because of work. But, uh, you know, I also like going to a hockey game, the Predators, yeah. the season tickets for the Predators. And, and that's a nice that's a nice little uh, treat. Yeah, four, four rows off the glass, just great seats, and to go hang out and yeah. take on a – you know, a, a game where people just beat their heads in the <laughs> that might be the that might be the greatest spectator sport of them all. I tell you, man, it's pretty ruckus. It is, well, of course. Nashville does an unbelievable job. I mean, wasn't it wasn't with last year. ESPN said that the the Nashville Predators fans are the ultimate fans of all sports. I believe combined. it. It's always sold out. It's packed. Yeah. They're loud, and you know, it's fun. It's, it's like fun. They fill the non live action with the like super high end entertainment that keeps you. In yeah. your seat and mm-hmm. keeps you involved in it. They've and really because it was interesting. So I, I ended up teaching a guy who was on the on the the board for the the Anaheim Ducks, hmm. and they came here to study what we're doing. Okay. No so I taught the guy here. He was a friend of a, of a of a family that goes to Ensworth, and I worked with him here. And then he said that he they were spent doing the first two games of the first round of the playoffs and they were just doing a 100% deep dive into every nuance hmm. that the predators were doing. And I thought that was really fast. Cause I go like one or two games yeah. a year and I don't go like all the time. And I did get a chance to go to two playoff games. I went to the, pl- the a Blackhawks game and I went to a, a Ducks game and we won both and yeah. it was insanity yeah. how loud it is oh man and we've done all these cool things like bringing the country music stars in to sing the national anthem mm-hmm. i mean those are the kind of things that's gonna be hard for other people to, to <laughs> re- reproduce you know but the, the, a playoff game the intensity is like just it's, it's so it's ratcheted up a lot more from a regular season games it seems like they're skating faster and they're hitting harder and oh yeah but yeah and that, that's a great game i love football too but you know i do like football but you know, I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan, and I like the Titans. It's, but it's kind of like it's just not. I don't have that passion mm-hmm. like for them as I do the Cowboys. And yeah, it's I think it's just that cowboy that, that, inside me. Yeah, well, not only that, but I mean, that's where you grew up. Yep. And it's just like I tell people all the time, and I'm from Pennsylvania, so I'm a diehard Nittany Lion fan. I had my chance to drop Penn State when the Sandusky thing went down, and mm-hmm. how awful that scenario was at Penn State, and. I went to Mississippi State. So I'm like, here's my opportunity to embrace my alma mater. And we were number one team in the country mm-hmm. with Dak Prescott, who's yeah. a cowboy. And I had this vibe like, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to go all in on my Bulldogs. First game of the year, Mississippi State's playing somebody at 2.30, and Penn State's playing somebody at 2.30. Yeah, you're watching Penn State. <laughs> I'm watching the Penn State game, and I can't not. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, being a Cowboys fan mm-hmm. is like being a Penn State fan. It's it a is. hallmark school, or, or hallmark football program in college and for the NFL. You know, some people say America's team is now the Patriots. I still don't believe that. I still mm-hmm. believe it's the Cowboys, although the Patriots have – they've done a bunch great, of great things right. in the last – 15 or 20 years but still everybody still it's the star man it's, it's the star and it's, you know I, I saw the titans play the first year the cowboys opened up their stadium that new amazing stadium went down for the game and saw the titans and cowboys play and you know i was it's kind of hey I, I want the cowboys win i want the titans to do well of course titans won and but you know but uh, i mean that that stadium is absolutely insane the scoreboards and the screens and just 
it, it's what an experience. Yeah, that's a bucket list for me. That's yeah. something I want to knock off my list. You know, and you come, you come back, then you go to a Titans game. You're like, oh, okay, <laughs> stadium has it's doesn't compare. Kind of like a wooden roller coaster. He says, why did they build a stadium? Of course, you know, I guess how many years ago has that been now? But ninety nine. Uh, yeah, I can't believe it's been that long. Twenty one years. Now. I remember going to Vanderbilt, watching them play at Vanderbilt when they first came in. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's pretty interesting, you know. The uh, uh, I have a, recently I started working with Eddie George, mm-hmm. one of the greatest t- Titans of all time, and to listen to him talk about what it was like to first play in Memphis, then to come to Vanderbilt, and then to finally get the, you know the Coliseum, and then obviously the first year we have the Coliseum, we go to the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. and the insanity that was that wild run, mm-hmm. and listen to him on his podcast, it was so good because. To obviously to be a spectator and a fan in Nashville to remember the Music City Miracle and then all the great nail biting. I think I lost three years of my life just watching the playoffs mm-hmm. that year. Um, we, we felt like we knew what was going on, but yeah. to have Eddie George sit down and talk to you about what was going on in the locker room and what what was Steve McNair saying in the huddle and mm-hmm. what made him so great and such a great leader. Like those are the kind of things that like yeah. that's that's. That's the coolest stuff in the world mm-hmm. that I that I love to hear. So, yeah, I can I can definitely understand the the power of the star. Yeah, it'd be nice to hear, hear some of those war stories from from Eddie George and my son Alexander. He and uh, his Eddie George's son that were in the same preschool together for a oh, while. Is that right? So we kind of you got a little bit you know, c- you know communication every now and then with him. But uh, Alexander, he'll see Eddie somewhere. And, hey, and he's like he, he's like biggest friend. Really, the one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. Mm-hmm. Really. Top even even though he's an Ohio State Buckeye, which is really hard for me to accept. Yeah. But he's, uh, I'm just kidding, Eddie. But he's uh, mm-hmm. he's he's phenomenal. When you think of uh, the the greatest game you've ever watched in person, whether it be going to a Masters or oh, going wow. to football, college football, basketball, whatever, what's the coolest game experience you've ever been a spectator at? You know, I have to say the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. Oh wow! Which one? 2010. Well, the one that Graham McDowell won. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was an amazing experience. First, we went out. Uh, a friend of mine, Randy, mm-hmm. uh, went out. We early we played uh, Pasa Tiempo and Spyglass, uh, and then we uh, went to the practice round on a Wednesday. And then we went to the op- opening round on Thursday. We just sat there on the number one tee box and just watched them just call out each golfer's name, next up on the tee, and next up on the tee, and they're just teeing off, just firing them off. Mm-hmm. And and then we went around and walked the course. And, and at, 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 the, at the American Express booth, they you could go in if you had an American Express card, and they would give you these little like mini iPads, and you have like a, like a strap around your neck. You could, it sort of kind of hung on your neck. You, you can watch what was going on on the course, what the scores were, who's leading, who's coming up. I'll never forget. I was we were on number three, and uh, watching where edge where they had all the ropes, and we we're right on the rope watching you know golfers coming through. And I go, oh man, Tiger Woods is about to come through. And we went to like two rows deep of people, to like a massive <laughs> sea of people. It's yeah. like I have nothing I've ever seen before in my life. I go, oh my god! And just thinking about and how it doesn't bother him, you know, he just plays right through it. And I'm a huge Tiger fan, and always, and he just, he just, he just there's so much excitement when he's actually, you know, 
playing, you know, yeah. to, to watch the tournament. But, you know, it's, uh, you know, saw Brandt out there and talked to him a little bit. And, and then being, being, being there and being on the, on the ropes and at the putting green, watching them putt and just watching their technique. And it's just like, it was just in awe. I was just in awe of these guys. And it was pretty cool. We, 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 because of Randy, he had this connection and we were able to stay right there at the facility. Oh, wow. And, um, and so we had, we had, they call it the, the 19th hole, what they call it, or a restaurant there. Uh, but we went in and had dinner and was sitting there having dinner and there was Graham McDowell and there was, you know, Rory McIlroy and Dottie Pepper and Jim Nance and all this. We felt like we were part of the circus. And they're probably like, who are these guys over here? How'd they get in here? You know, oh, that is so but cool. it was so cool because all these pro golfers are in there and we just kind of hung out there and. We're, we're eating dinner and, and I watch Roy McElroy pound two big hamburgers. <laughs> That's before he got in this physical kick. Oh, you know? yeah. That was when he was a kid. And he was. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> it was pretty cool. But that's hands down the best ever. I want to do that again. Yeah, that's a pretty spectacular place. Now, my favorite golf course over there is Cypress Point. Cypress. Yeah. Cypress Point is so spectacular. It was like two courses, you know? Yeah. I mean, Cypress. I'm thinking Spyglass. Yeah, you're, uh, Spyglass is almost like. Two courses. Yeah, that's right. There's a couple holes on the ocean. You go into the forest. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. Cypress, I haven't played Cypress. I, that's that's on my bucket list someday yeah. to, to do. Yeah, that's a winner right there. That's that's one of my. I mean, I'm so fortunate to teach a couple members, and so I've had a chance to play it twice. It's it's so magical. And I've I've been very blessed. Outside of Long Island, which I haven't played any of the Long Island courses, and I've been to a Women's U.S. Open with a player and a U.S. Open at, at Shinnecock, but I've not. Never mm-hmm. played there. I've not played Pine Valley, but I've played just about everything else that anybody want to play in America. Mm-hmm. And Cypress Point's the best I've ever played. Exactly. It's so mad. It so is. when I get ready to go out there, I just got to call you. Yeah, right? I, I just got to make sure that I'm there. Yeah, kind of got to make sure I'm there to get you on. It's a wow. that's a magical place. What do you think of Pasa Tiempo? You know, it's a hard course. Is it? Yeah, I, of course. You know, that part of my game. You know, that many years ago, I was not the golfer I am now mm. and I love to be able to go back and play it again but I think it was beautiful it was challenging and uh, you know some of the holes were pr- pretty amazing but yeah I liked it a lot though. I liked the McAllister course you know it's uh, I want to I do that one again yeah I have not played that that's that's one of my to do for me mm-hmm. I want to definitely do that I like to go I'd like to go out there and do like a Pebble Cypress Spyglass mm-hmm. Posse Tiempo and there's so many awesome tracks out there yeah but the Fort Ord courses that are right out there, the Black Horse, and I can't remember the name of the other golf mm. course, are unbelievable. They've had yeah. multiple final stages of Q schools there. Mm-hmm. And it's I mean, it's not 10 minutes away from, maybe 12 minutes away from Pebbles. I mean, it's there's a lot of awesome golf out there. Yeah, just, you know, th- being on... Being on Pebble, I'm sure, you know, being on Cypress because there's a lot of history there as well. Yeah. And being on Pebble and just think about, hey, man, all the guys that played this course, all the tournaments that have played on this course, and it's just amazing, you know, being able to tee off. And I remember the first time we played it, it was like nice and, you know, it's and nice and, you know, sunny. And the second time we went to play, it was foggy. I said, you're teeing off. You can't even see you your see balls ball. going. <laughs> He's like, where's it going? I can't tell. Yeah. And so, uh, but it was, it's interesting. You kind of know what, you don't know what you're going to get when you get out there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, I've had an opportunity to play, you know, some other really cool courses from like uh, Pinehurst and, you know, Kohler to uh, Colonial and went out to uh, Seattle a few years ago and went to, uh, it's the same year they had the U.S. Open. Oh, you went to Chambers Bay? Chambers Bay. 
and probably the most miserable round of golf I've ever, ever experienced. And really? It wasn't the golf course per se. It was beautiful. It was the weather. Mm. It's like, you know, it's, I took my rain suit because I saw on the weather forecast it might have be a chance of rain. And I get there, it's about 50, and it's barely misting. And and then all of a sudden, I hear my you know, our, our time up, and they call us to come tee off, and it just starts to pour down raining. <laughs> I mean, pouring down. I'm putting my rain suit on and, uh-huh. and looking at the caddy and, like, and looked at the starter. I said, hey, they're going to gonna delay this? I mean, it's like pouring. He goes, no, you got to go. I go, What? Walk out there, pouring down raining, my rain gloves on, you know, caddy holding the umbrella, and I go there and I tee off, and you know, I probably pushed it out to the right somewhere, uh-huh. and, and it rained solid hard for like three holes, then stopped. <laughs> Sun came out, and it got hot. Took that, took my my rain suit off, and and next thing you know, another another storm came in, rained again, <laughs> and then on the back nine, and the temperatures just dropped down to like well, like. 30s degrees and it oh started sleeting and we're on the putting green and you're putting and there's sleet all over the green that's a tough day it's the most miserable round i've ever played that's, yeah that's why i played old mcdonald abandoned dunes mm-hmm. people ask about that what do you think of old mcdonald's i said it looked like a pair of foot joys yeah really <laughs> it was raining so hard oh, i could only look at my shoes yeah. the whole day oh man yeah. oh it was awful yeah. that's my round of golf that was terrible that's a day that i'll never forget but i'm ready to go back to california and do pebble i want to do pebble love to do you know cypress, cypress. that would be amazing yeah that'd be really cool i can definitely work that out for you talking about wine that's one of my all-time favorite topics and you, you mentioned french wine and Obviously, I would. It's hard to argue that the French wine at all levels, whether it's Burgundy, Bordeaux, Rhone Valley, Champagne, mm-hmm. I mean, they're the kings. They are when when it comes to wine. And I love Italian wine, and I love Napa Valley, and I love Air, uh, um, uh, Australia, mm-hmm. South Africa. I love them all. But if you put the best of the best of each grape, it all comes out of France. It seems mm-hmm. to me. I think so. And so, what are your what are your favorites? You know, it's just. If normally if I see it's a French wine, it's, it's like from from a uh, like a Burgundy, and uh, or a Pinot, some sort of Pinot, and mm-hmm. uh, sometimes believe it or not, you might find something out of Oregon. It's a Pinot that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. I haven't found many California Pinots I like at all. Me either. And I, it's just something about the taste. As soon as, that, as soon as I see it poured in the glass, I can almost tell for the color of it. It, I'm not gonna like it, and then I taste it. You know, and it just has this. It's leaner. It's got. It's a little. If, I don't know what it greener. is. It's something, but something about the French, you know, Pinots, yeah. Burgundy wines. It's just they, they're smoother. They're, you know, I just. Uh, it's a different world. And there's so many of them, and so you kind of uh, like. Yeah. I tend to forget the different names. I have some of my favorites that I'll go, go back and I'll. My wife tells you, that's, 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 have we had that one before? She's, my wife's great with names. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible with names. Yeah. And, I, and so I recognize the label, and she goes, yeah, we've had that one before. You love that one. Okay, get that one. And, you know, I, I don't mind you know, spending the money for a really great bottle of wine. Yeah. It's to the point now that if I open a bottle of wine and it's not very good, I don't want to drink it. I don't drink it. Yeah. And every now and then somebody will give you a bottle of wine for as a gift. Mm-hmm. And then and it'll be like a California Pinot or something, and I open it up, and it's just not very good at all, and it'll just sit there on the counter. And, it, and that sounds kind of snobbish, but it's not really. It's just the taste. I think over the years, I, your taste evolves. Yeah. Like everything evolves. Like architecture evolves. Your golf game evolves. I think the wine, your taste for wine evolves. And, um, and to the point now is I'm just very picky on 
the wine that I drink. It's interesting because like when I, there was a time that I was really involved in the community of wine, and I was, mm-hmm. and I have a deep passion for it. And if it wasn't for the flood, I'd still probably be in that deal. But the flood pretty much ended my high end wine days. Mm-hmm. So I still have a, what I had collected for a while, and I still probably have mm, 150 really nice. Bordeaux's mm-hmm. and you know the the Penfolds Grange and some of that Valley and stuff like that. But you're like the thing is now a lot of the great wines that I bought in ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand, especially two thousand Bordeaux, which is mm-hmm. widely considered one of the greatest since sixty one. To be honest, now they're twenty years old. Wow! So you, I, I I'll pull one out. Maybe I'll probably pull out two a year. Twenty mm-hmm. year old Bordeaux. And it ain't hardly a thing really? in the world that really? can touch. But I would say, obviously, if you get like a, four, a first growth. So I've mm-hmm. had this year. I had a 1990 Lafitte. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it was so good that you're 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 kind of scratching your head, like, wow, like you don't hmm. want it to end. Yeah. And I also had a uh, a 97 Margot mm-hmm. this year. So there's some I've already. I guess the COVID's got me thinking about maybe I should just go ahead and open start, up, yeah, start get, get some of my good wine. But the high-end Bordeaux wines and the high-end Burgundy wines and the high-end Chateauneuf de Pops. Whoa. Yep. Wow. It's serious. And what, what, Do you like French food the most, or is there a type of food that you like more than I love French food. I love really good interior Mexican food, being from Texas. Really uh. good spicy food. And, and uh, yeah, so, that's, you know, it's... There's a, there's a big and, difference. And great Italian food, too. Uh-huh, yeah. There's a big difference between what is considered real Mexican food mm-hmm. and kind of Mexican food. Yeah, they got the Tex-Mex, and your Texas Tex-Mex, then you got the more of an interior, eclectic kind of Mexican food that gets into the sauces a lot, you know, uh-huh. the mole sauces and stuff, and the mole enchiladas. And, uh, but, yeah, it's uh, definitely a difference, and... You know, in town right now, is where do you go for great Mexican food? Every now and then, I would love to go up to Rose Pepper up in East Nashville and do their fajita picants, really spicy fajitas. And, mm-hmm. and then over at, uh, believe it or not, Uncle Julio's is, I think, pretty decent for for if you want some decent enchiladas. Yeah. And But, yeah, but my wife makes some really good Mexican food. You know, when, when the chief is behind the wheel of yeah. the, the, the dinner. It's hard to say no to that. Yeah, but her mother and both, her mom say, hey, you guys want to come over for uh, you know Sunday dinner? I go, absolutely, we'll be there. Because <laughs> it, it, it's always great. And my father-in-law always puts out, pulls out some really great French wine. He's, oh. a big, he's the same way. French wine, French, you know, burgundy wines, or it could be a Cote de Rhone. It could be something yeah. else. But he's, uh, he's so it's, it's almost, it's a treat to go over there. And they're like, he's 91 and she's 81. And they're extremely active and, and, and he's like spoiled because he cooks for him all the time. Lunch. If I'm in the area at lunchtime, I call. Hey, uh, so you guys, uh, what you doing for lunch today? And and she, oh, we're having this. I'll call, I'll be over. You know, you guys <laughs> so get a little great. extra. Yeah, that is so food. fun. That's why I got to run. Yeah, work out. Gotta, you got to run Keep off my, that. You got to yeah. run off that food and exactly. Wine. Good exactly. for you. A couple of fire quick passes on some questions, and then we'll get to the the big finale. Tiger or Jack? Who's the greatest golfer? Mm. You know, I've watched some Jack growing up. Obviously, watching Tiger because it's you know in our era. So yeah. I, I, I think I'm thinking, I'm going to say Tiger. I think Tiger's played 
golf greater than anybody's ever played it. Yes, Jack holds the records, and Jack's no slouch. We're definitely not mm-hmm. sitting there saying that Jack was terrible. But there were multiple times, especially between 2000 and 2005, that Tiger was the best at everything. Yeah. Everything. It was literally, it was funny. Like, the I have a, a sheet, I think it was 2000 and 2002. Tiger was number one in every statistical category but bunker saves, hmm. where he was like, 43% for getting up and down to bunkers. But the problem was for the rest of the tour, he only hit it in 47 bunkers all year. So mm-hmm. he didn't have to, he only he got up and down like 23 right. out of 47 times. You look at how you know, fast he did it as well as how long he was number one in the world. Yeah. It just, it's amazing. And then coming back from such a you know bad back injury and, and being able to win and win the masters. And yeah, that was unbelievable. And it just, it's just it's so exciting. I, I just hope he has, you know, at least, you know, four or five more years left. We'll see, you know. Yeah, we'll definitely see. I think that right now the the COVID situation is benefiting him more than anybody else. Oh, I think so. A lot of rest. He doesn't yeah. have to have too many repetitions, you know, That's on right. his back. And, you know, the, but without – with golf not – with Tiger not in the field on a golf tournament, I still like to watch, but it's not – It's not the same. It's not the same. It's Who's going to be that person that's going to come up – have that same energy that he brings to the game that just excites the public. You know, yeah. I don't know. No doubt. It's going to be somebody that has the same kind of magnetism that Tiger had, but is more of a people person than he was. Mm-hmm. Like if there was a blend of Mickelson and Tiger, that person would rule golf. Mm. Because Mickelson, man, he just holds court, yeah. but he doesn't have the, he doesn't have the game that yeah. Tiger had and the, the way man Tiger had, I mean, I just I tell people all the time. I think if they had to put the greatest ten golf shots in the history of major championships, or and just PGA Tour golf, probably all Tiger. They'd have to be almost all Tiger outside of a Jack Nicklaus one iron on the seventeenth hole at Pebble Beach, and a handful of other like shots. I mean, I can like reel off the ten greatest shots in my head, and I'm like that bunker shot that Tiger hit at the Canadian Open, all over water, right over the flagstick. Oh yeah. That's that's the in my opinion that's the greatest shot that I've ever seen, and I'm thinking to myself, I mean he took it right at the flag from two eleven with a six iron. Who's mm-hmm. got that out right. of a fairway bunker? What about the one in Pebble Beach? You know he's hitting us at number, was it par four up? Is it number eight? No seven, number seven up the hill. The par five. The par, the par five. Oh, the par five. Yeah, the seven iron hit out of the rough. I mean in the rough had to. Up and almost cut it a little bit yeah. to the green. I mean, that shot was insane. Yeah, I remember Faraday's like, I think, no, maybe it was Roger Maltby. Maltby's like, yeah, this is this ball's sitting way down. It looks like he's got like a seven. He's just going to pitch it up over the hill. And there's this ferocious lash, and it goes up onto the front of the green, and Roger Maltby had nothing to say other than, uh, what did I just see? Yeah, I think, said, well, I think I saw that comment was, this is just not a fair fight. This is not a fair fight. That is exactly right. If you had to... Uh, Put your money on Roger Staubach, Troy Aikman. Who's the greatest quarterback in Dallas Cowboy history? Hmm. You know, that's a tough one there. That is a tough one. I've had a couple of Cowboy fans in here. They've all said Staubach so far. I'm, I'm, that's why I'm leaning. I'm leaning Staubach. That kind of really at first. Yeah. Yeah. I bet you don't like the Steelers very much. You know, they kind of they did they did put a little damper in our championship run for sure in the seventies. Yeah, for they sure. did. You know, and you know, I do like the Cowboys. I still like the Cowboys. And you know, you know, Dax. You know, he's a great quarterback. I just don't know if he's that quarterback that's going to really take him all the way for a long, long time. I may be wrong. 
Yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, you know, they have a lot of the pieces. Mm-hmm. They got a great running back. Great. They, now they got receivers. wide receivers. Yeah. Now they got great wide receivers. So that's like the Michael Irvin, Alvin Harper, Novacek, mm-hmm. Emmett Smith. That's a tough combo if you got Troy Aikman at quarterback. Yeah. When it was Stallback, it was Tony Dorsett and mm-hmm. Tony Hill and Drew Pearson mm-hmm. and who Michael, was the yeah, who he, was the tight end? Was it Billy Joe oh, Dupree? It was right? a. Was it Billy Joe Dupree? No. I can't remember who the big, the, their famous tight end was. And they, blank. But they were, they were awesome. And they had Butch mm-hmm. Johnson. They, you know, mm-hmm. There were so many great. And they've had some, been loaded up with players in, the, in each era. You had Staubach and the Aikmans and all the guys that were there. And, and But and, the 70s teams had Randy White, Ed Tutal Jones, John Dutton, yeah, the Bob great Lilly. linebackers. And then. The Cowboys of the '90s had another great defensive line and linebackers. Mm-hmm. Right now, their defense doesn't match up to the quality of their offense. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an area in the draft. I thought they would really help you know, beef up. I think they did a little bit, but mm-hmm. you know, that thing's getting better. Yeah, we'll see. But you know, we'll see what you know Prescott can do this year, and yeah. you know, maybe the reason why they didn't want to pay him a full, you know, long term contract to see you know can he can, can he live up, can yeah. he do it. Yeah, they can they can do it one more year. Yeah, can you do it? They can do it two years in a row. Yeah, hmm. it was interesting. I know he's licking his chops because after Patrick Mahomes just signed oh. for five hundred three million, <laughs> so he's like, yeah, that's, that's insane, Thanks, Patrick. That's insane. Congrats. We had this we had this conversation yesterday. When I was working out with my trainer, my the guy I work out with weights on and with. He's my he says he says if you. Said, and I said, I don't think so. There's a lot of, it's a lot of money to pay a quarterback. Is it worth it if he could bring you two Super Bowls? And I'm like, you know, I don't know. I still think it's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> because cause it's basically this, that my understanding is that contract is just an extension to the current contract that he has that doesn't expire for two more years. So I think in that contract, he still has like 30 something million a year. And then he goes to that. To the new contract, it's almost fifty million a year, or, or is it with incentives? Is is it? Will will he ever see all that money? I doubt it. Yeah, probably not. If he does, he'll be one of the greatest quarterbacks in the history of the game. If he yeah. lasts that long, he'll be in Tom Brady's world, yeah. Peyton Manning's world. Yeah, he'll, he's super he'll ever, talented. He'll never see all that money. He'll, something will happen. You know. Yeah. He'll be. He'll, they'll lose to the Cowboys next year. <laughs> Love it. Final question. Mm-hmm. Who? You're going to get a chance to play one golf course, and you get a chance to pick three people to play with you, and they can be dead or alive. Hmm. Who would be three people that you want to play golf with, and where would you want to play? Hmm. Well, you know, I think you know Pebble Beach is definitely one that I'd love to go back to. Uh, obviously, I'd love to play around the golf with Tiger Woods, and you know Tom Watson would be the other one, mm-hmm. and um, third one. Hmm. You know, I've never played golf with Brent Snedeker, even though I see him at Hillwood every now and then. It'd be kind of nice to be able to play around a golf with somebody like that that's from our hometown. Yeah, you kind of know. You don't know, know, but you've you, you, you followed him. Mm-hmm. He's a person that you relate to because he's, he's really he's a class act. Mm-hmm. He's always engaging. He's he's the kind of person that could be the glue that could get the conversation started yeah. between Tom Watson and Tiger and and you too. I mean, that'd be, that would be an awesome – that would be so good at you, Pebble Beach yeah, too. Yeah, but the thing about you know, he, 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 then maybe a Ben Hogan, you know, 
being a Texas guy, growing yeah. up in Texas, and and you know we talked the other day about the being. I see a lot of advertisement now for the Ben Hogan clubs, and just growing up, and I had a uh, one of my uncles worked for Ben Hogan, and oh, wow. for their club manufacturing facility in Fort Worth, and I had a chance to tour their facility. I mean, years and years and years ago, and that was really cool to see how golf clubs are being made. Uh, but yeah, I think he might be one of the other ones. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Tiger, Tom Watson, Ben Hogan, and Alan Looney. Next on the tee from Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. Alan Looney. Well, that'd be awesome. Alan, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story and your life with us on The Verge. And uh, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. You. And I'll see you on Saturday morning. That's right. Great. <laughs> Look forward to it. Thank Appreciate you. it, buddy. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.